Section 6 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 6. Thomas Jefferson, Part 1. If I could not go to heaven but with the party, I would not go there at all. Jefferson, in a letter to Madison. William and Mary College was founded in 1692 by the persons whose names it bears. The founders bestowed on it an endowment that would have been generous had there not been attached to it sundry strings in way of conditions. The intent was to make Indians Episcopalians and white students clergymen, and the assumption being that between the whites and the aborigines there was little difference, the curriculum was an ecclesiastic medley. All the teachers were appointed by the Bishop of London, and the places were usually given to clergymen who were not needed in England. To this college, in 1760, came Thomas Jefferson, a tall, red-haired youth, aged 17. He had a sharp nose and a sharp chin, and a youth having these has a sharp intellect. Mark it well. This boy had not been sent to college. He came of his own accord from his home at Shadwell, five days horseback journey through the woods. His father was dead, and his mother, a rare gentle soul, was an invalid. Death is not a calamity per se, nor is physical weakness necessarily a curse, for out of these seeming unkind conditions nature often distills her finest products. The dying injunction of a father may impress itself upon a son as no example of right living ever can, and the physical disability of a mother may be the means that work for excellence and strength. The last expressed wish of Peter Jefferson was that his son should be well educated and attain to a degree of useful manliness that the father had never reached and into the keeping of this fourteen-year-old youth the dying man with the last flicker of his intellect gave the mother sisters and baby brother we often hear of persons who became aged in a single night their hair turning from dark to white but i have seen death thrust responsibility upon a lad and make of him a man between the rising of the sun and its setting when we talk of right environment and the proper conditions that should surround growing youth, we fan the air with words. There is no such thing as a universal right environment. An appreciative chapter might here be inserted concerning those beings who move about only in rolling chairs, who never see the winter landscape but through windows, and who exert the gentle sway from an invalid's coach, to which the entire household or neighborhood come to confession or to counsel. And yet I have small sympathy for the people who professionally enjoy poor health, and no man more than I reverences the Greek passion for physical perfection. But a close study of Jefferson's early life reveals the truth that the death of his father and the physical weakness of his mother and sisters were factors that developed in him a gentle sense of chivalry, a silken strength of will, and a habit of independent thought and action that served him in good stead throughout a long life. Williamsburg was then the capital of Virginia. It contained only about a thousand inhabitants, but when the legislature was in session, it was very gay. 
At one end of a wide avenue was the capital, and at the other the governor's palace. And when the city of Washington was laid out, Williamsburg served as a model. On Saturdays there were horse races on the avenue. Everybody gambled. Cockfights and dogfights were regarded as manly diversions. There was much carousing at taverns, and often at private houses there were all-night dances where the rising sun found everybody but the servants plain drunk. At the college, both teachers and scholars were obliged to subscribe to the 39 articles and to recite the catechism. The atmosphere was charged with theology. Young Jefferson had never before seen a village of even a dozen houses, and he looked upon this as a type of all cities. He thought about it, talked about it, wrote about it, and we now know that at this time his ideas concerning city versus country crystallized. Fifty years after, when he had come to know London and Paris, and had seen the chief cities of Christendom, he repeated the words he had written in youth, quote, The hope of a nation lies in its tillers of the soil. End quote. On his mother's side, he was related to the first families, but aristocracy and caste had no fascination for him, and he then began forming those ideas of unity, simplicity, and equality that time only strengthened. His tutors and professors served chiefly as, quote, horrible examples, end quote, with the shining exception of Dr. Small. The friendship that ripened between this man and young Jefferson is an ideal example of what can be done through the personal touch. Men are great only as their excellent sympathy, and the difference between sympathy and imagination has not yet been shown us. Dr. Small encouraged the young farmer from the hills to think and to express himself. He did not endeavor to set him straight or explain everything for him, or correct all his vagaries, or demand that he should memorize rules. He gave his affectionate sympathy to the boy, who, with a sort of feminine tenderness, clung to the only person who understood him. To Dr. Small, pedigree and history unknown, let us give the credit of being first in the list of friends that gave bend to the mind of Jefferson. John Burke, in his History of Virginia, refers to Professor Small thus, quote, He was not any too orthodox in his opinions, end quote. And here we catch a glimpse of a formative influence in the life of Jefferson that caused him to turn from the letter of the law and cleave to the spirit that maketh alive. After school hours, the tutor and the student walked and talked, and on Saturdays and Sundays went on excursions through the woods, and to the youth there was given an impulse for a scientific knowledge of birds and flowers and the host of life that thronged the forest. And when the pair had strayed so far beyond the town that darkness gathered and the stars came out, they conversed of the wonders of the sky. The true scientist has no passion for killing things. He says, with Thoreau, quote, to shoot a bird is to lose it, end quote. Professor Small had the gentle instinct that respects life, and he refused to take that which he could not give. To his youthful companion, he imparted in a degree the secret of enjoying things without the passion for possession and the lust of ownership. There is a myth abroad that college towns are intellectual centers, but the number of people in a college town, or any other, who really think is very few. Williamsburg was gay, and, this much said, it is needless to add it was not intellectual. But Professor Small was a thinker, and so was Governor Fauquier, and these two were firm friends, although very unlike in many ways. 
and to the palace of the courtly Fauquier, Small took his young friend Jefferson. Fauquier was often a master of the rebels, but after his seasons of dissipation, he turned to Small for absolution and comfort. At these times, he seemed to Jefferson a paragon of excellence. To the grace of the French, he added the earnestness of the English. He quoted Pope and talked of Swift, Addison, and Thompson. Fauquier and Jefferson became friends, although more than a score of years and a world of experience separated them. Jefferson caught a little of Fauquier's grace, love of books, and delight in architecture. But Fauquier helped him most by gambling away all his ready money and getting drunk and smoking strong pipes with his feet on the table. And Jefferson then vowed he would never handle a card, nor use tobacco, nor drink intoxicating liquors. And in conversation with Small, he anticipated Buckle by saying, quote, To gain leisure, wealth must first be secured. But once leisure is gained, more people use it in the pursuit of pleasure than employ it in acquiring knowledge. End quote. Had Jefferson lived in a great city, he would have been an architect. His practical nature, his mastery of mathematics, his love of proportion, and his passion for music are the basic elements that make a Christopher Wren. But Virginia, in 1765, offered no temptation to ambitions along that line. Log houses with a goodly crack were quite good enough, and if the domicile proved too small, the plan of the first was simply duplicated. Yet, a career of some kind, young Jefferson knew, awaited him. About this time, the rollicking Patrick Henry came along. Patrick played the violin, and so did Thomas. These two young men had first met on a musical basis. Some otherwise sensible people hold that musicians are shallow and impractical, and I know one man who declares that truth and honesty and uprightness never dwelt in a professional musician's heart, and further, that the tribe is totally incapable of comprehending the difference between meum and tuum. But then the same man claims that actors are rascals who have lost their own characters in the business of playing they are somebody else. And yet I'll explain for the benefit of the captious that, though Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry both fiddled, they never did and never would fiddle while Rome burned. Music was with them a pastime, not a profession. As soon as Patrick Henry arrived at Williamsburg, he sought out his old friend Thomas Jefferson because he liked him and to save Tavern Bill. And Patrick announced that he had come to Williamsburg to be admitted to the bar. How long have you studied law? asked Jefferson. Oh, for six weeks last Tuesday, was the answer. Tradition has it that Jefferson advised Patrick to go home and study at least a fortnight more before making his application. But Patrick declared that the way to learn law is to practice it, and he surely was right. Most young lawyers are really never aware of how little law they know until they begin to practice. But Patrick Henry was duly admitted, although George Wythe protested. Then Patrick went home to tend bar, the other kind, for Laban, his father-in-law, for full four years. He studied hard and practiced little betimes, and his is the only instance that history records of a barkeeper acquiring wisdom while following his calling. But for the encouragement of budding youth, I write it down. No doubt it was the example of Patrick Henry that caused Jefferson to adopt his profession, but it was the literary side of law that first attracted him, not the practice of it. As a speaker, he was singularly deficient, a slight physical malformation of the throat giving him a very poor and uncertain voice. 
but he studied law, and after all, it does not make much difference what a man studies. All knowledge is related, and the man who studies anything, if he keeps at it, will become learned. So Jefferson studied in the office of George Wythe, and absorbed all that Fauquier had to offer, and grew wise in the companionship of Dr. Small. From a red-headed, lean, lank, awkward mountaineer, he developed into a gracious and graceful young man, who has been described as, quote, auburn-haired, end quote. And the evolution from being red-headed to having red hair, and from that to being auburn-haired, proves he was the genuine article. Still, he was not handsome. That word cannot be used to describe him until he was sixty, for he was freckled, one shoulder was higher than the other, and his legs were so thin that they could not do justice to small clothes. Yet it will not do to assume that thin men are weak, any more than to take it for granted that fat men are strong. Jefferson was as muscular as a panther, and could walk, or ride, or run six days and nights together. He could lift from the floor a thousand pounds. When twenty-four, he hung out his lawyer's sign under that of George Wythe at Williamsburg, and clients came that way with retainers, and rich planters sent him business, and wealthy widows advised with him. And still he could not make a speech without stuttering. Many men can harangue a jury, and every village has its orator, but where is the wise and silent man who will advise you in a way that will keep you out of difficulty, protect your threatened interests, and conduct the affairs you may leave in his hands so as to return your ten talents with other talents added? And I hazard the statement, without heat or prejudice, that if the experiment should be made with a thousand lawyers in any one of our larger cities, four-fifths of them would be found so deficient, either mentally, morally, or both, that if ten talents were placed in their hands, they would not at the close of a year be able to account for the principal to say nothing of the interest. And the bar of today is made up of a better class than it was in Jefferson's time, even if it has not the intellectual fibre that it had forty years ago. But at the early age of twenty-five, Jefferson was a wise and skilful man in the world's affairs, and a man who is wise is also honest, and men of this stamp do not remain hidden in obscurity. The world needs just such individuals and needs them badly. Jefferson had the quiet, methodical industry that works without undue expenditure of nervous force, that intuitive talent which enables the possessor to read a whole page at a glance and drop at once upon the vital point, and then he had the ability to get his whole case on paper, marshalling his facts in a brief, pointed way that served to convince better than eloquence. These are the characteristics that make for success in practice before our courts of appeal and Jefferson's success shows that they serve better than bluster, even with a backwoods bench composed of fox-hunting farmers. End of section 6